we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist and the author of the Complete Compliance Handbook, back again with my good friend and colleague, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Today, we revisit a topic we have talked about before and Matt has written about extensively, which is query, is overregulation really the reason there are fewer IPOs? Uh, I asked Matt if we could talk about this based upon a great blog post by Kevin LaCroix over on the DNO Diary. He wrote about, uh, uh, he blogged in very meta sense on another blog called the CLS Blue Sky Blog. Uh, 
<clears throat> which reported on some testimony by uh, Columbia Law School professor John Coffey, which Matt has uh, for us today. So with that very long-winded explanation of uh, a meta podcast about uh, two blog posts, Matt, welcome. Hello, Tom. It's uh, back to good to be back, and we've we've got a lot of stuff that we could talk about here today. So, uh, Matt, one of the things that really intrigued me was that Professor Coffey really, um, if he doesn't demolish the myth that uh, persistently asserted by industry groups saying that uh, overregulation has caused the uh, drop of IPOs, he puts a big dent into it. And he, and he came up with some uh, new uh, arguments that I had not seen. You want to uh, kind of set the stage for us? Yeah, sure. So I think it's even worth taking a further step back about why did John Coffey write that first post at all, which then led to Kevin LaCroix's post and our blog, our podcast here today, um, because House Republicans at the Financial Services Committee are back again pushing a series of legislative reforms that may or may not go very far um, to repeal some of the corporate governance and corporate compliance and investor protection rules that have been around now for at least since the Dodd-Frank Act and possibly all the way back to the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002, depending on exactly what we're talking about. But long story short, the House Financial Services Committee, led by uh, Republican Congressman Jeb Henserling of Texas, uh, he has long been a foe of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, of the Dodd-Frank Act, of all things corporate governance and compliance and investor protection. He's always been looking to nick and tuck at them. Um, so he tried last year to push a suite of bills that would, say, eliminate um, Section 404B of SOX for smaller companies. That's the annual audit of internal controls. That was going to go away. Uh, say on pay votes for shareholders, uh, that was going to go away, and various other things. You know, you can all take your your guess at. But his proposals last year went nowhere, and so some of you may remember that earlier this year we had this Dodd Frank reform bill that got signed into law. Well, wasn't that related to this? No, it was not. What was signed into law this spring was came out of the Senate and was mostly intended to address the banking regulations and the Federal Reserve and Dodd-Frank stress tests and all of that. What was not discussed in that legislation, because it was never going to get past the Senate, was any sort of Sarbanes-Oxley repeals or Dodd-Frank repeals around capital formation or shareholder rights or corporate governance. Um, those are some of Henserling in the House, some of his pet causes. So he is back again trying to get more of that legislation passed. Uh, the Financial Services Committee has passed a series of those reforms. They have not yet passed the full House. They probably will. Henserling says there will be some sort of version 3.0 repeal coming later this fall. Will that actually get through the Senate? I don't know. Would it get signed into law? Who can tell? But that's why we're here. So that's, that's a long-winded way of saying that John Coffey wrote this post. So if we want to take a breath, we can then dive into what Coffey had to say. Um, I, oh, go ahead, Tom. No, uh, I duly noted. I took my breath, and uh, I thought Coffey had really interesting, uh, really interesting arguments. You want to lay them out, or do you want me to? Well, you know, I'll pick out some of the high points. I thought what was most interesting is that Coffey basically said 
that the lack of IPOs, the decline of IPOs in this country, which is a legitimate trend, um, this can't be ascribed to U.S. overregulation because the decline in IPOs is happening in other markets as well. So there are various regulatory regimes out there, some of which are pretty light touch and loosey goosey compared to the U.S. regime. They're having declines in IPOs. Um, secondly, it depends on exactly what type of IPO you're talking about. Small company IPOs are definitely down. Large company IPOs fluctuate up and down depending kind of on what period you're talking about. Uh, it is always worth remembering that when Republicans say, well, the number of public companies has declined by half since 1996, that's true. It's now more than half. What they neglect to say is the vast majority of that decline happened in the dot-com implosion around 2000, 2001, and 2002. So since 2003, the number of publicly traded companies in the U.S. has declined only about 20 or 25 percent, and much of that can be accounted for in the M&A craze that has been going on since we entered the era of low interest rates circa 2004 and certainly since 2008 when the financial crisis, when the Fed cut rates to zero. You know, that suddenly let everybody go on an M&A craze because you can borrow as much money as you want from the banks if you're a giant company looking to scoop businesses up. Um, and the other point that Coffee and many others have made is that this is not necessarily that companies can't go public in the United States. It's that they do not want to go public and they have no motive to go public because the private markets are so strong and robust in this country. And so if you are a small uh, company thinking about uh, looking to expand or get more capital or have some liquidity event, do you want to go through the rigmarole of an IPO and you still have to run the company at the end of it? And now you're going to be subject to the vicissitudes of all these short-term thinkers on Wall Street. Do you really want to do that? Or do you want to take a buyout? You'll get gobs of cash. You won't get gobs of stock. You'll get gobs of cash. Uh, your employees would get gobs of cash. And you may or may not lose your job as part of the buyout. But again, you have gobs of cash. And if it is a strategic buyer, especially, um, they probably are buying your product because they have some other uh, purpose in mind for what you want to do and your company and what you've invested all this time in. Like it's still going to live on in some way. Um, so like it, it's really it's just it doesn't ring true that regulation has been the death knell for IPOs. There are much larger forces here that are pushing the number of IPOs down and deregulation isn't going to do anything more than weaken corporate governance, investor protections, strong internal controls, all that stuff. I mean, it's going to go away. And the only people who make this over-regulation argument are those people who, I'm sure just by coincidence, make money taking companies public. They're the only ones who are saying that the regulation is getting in the way. Everyone else says that there are much larger forces, and that is, in fact, the case. Matt, one of the things that intrigued me was Coffee uh, asserted that IPOs for smaller firms have consistently um, been unsuccessful for a sustained period, basically losing money for all concerned. And this is a concern or an issue that uh, I have not seen raised before, but he asserted that research showed that smaller companies really struggle after going public. Uh, my experience with smaller companies that have gone the private equity route either have greater access to more capital or um, the private equity uh, points 
a, a truly professional board or professional management to come in and run the company so that there's a, really a greater uh, opportunity for the company that's gone the pro- private equity route to be successful. We just don't hear about it. You know, I think that's true. And on a very like simple sense, um, if you're owned by private equity, you have one boss. It's the private equity people. And they're, I mean, love them or hate them. And there have been many occasions I've hated private equity. They know what it is they're there to do. That is to extract money or value performance from the organization. That's it. Some of them are very predatory about it. Some of them will actually invest money to, into the company, but they don't pick losers and they really they, – they want a payback on their investment. And it's just one constituency you have to worry about if you're the CEO. If you're the CEO of a small publicly traded company, you have a zillion constituencies you have to wor- worry about. Many of them will be second-guessing you all the time. And they will be second-guessing you based on different criteria, private equity-based second-guesses you all the time just on your ability to give them more money. That's it. Um, but you know, again and again, when you see CEOs surveyed about why are they reticent to go public, it's because they would lose control of the company. Uh, they would be subject to the short-term whims. And you know, sure, that may happen in private equity, but many times it does not. And I've been owned by private equity in some parts of my career, and like some of them are actually pretty good guys. Um, but again, you know, it's it is a simpler world in private equity. And again, you know, they align your performance with gobs of cash because they do have gobs of cash, and that is not what you can say about the IPO. You might have gobs of cash on paper for like a couple of months, and then the lockout period ends, and everybody's selling their stock, and your gobs of cash become little tiny gobs. And you know, th- that's the sort of dynamic that is at work here. So there were a couple of things that Kevin LaCro- LaCroix raised that he felt warranted uh, further consideration. Uh, and one is that <clears throat> there is obviously a lower litigation risk uh, if you go the private equity route. And um, if I can maybe contrast that with what may be the the world's biggest IPO, if it ever happens, with Saudi Aramco. And one of the concerns they have in coming to the New York Stock Exchange is subjecting themselves to potential U.S. litigation. Uh, do you think this um, this uh, claim that a stock price drop would spur litigation, would really keep people from going into the IP market, or is this just another anti-lawyer rant red herring? Well, there's always an, an anti-lawyer rant out there for almost any situation <laughs> you can find. <laughs> but um, I, you know, frankly, I think that's bogus. If you're running a good company, you can take it public, and you won't have a whole lot of litigation risk relative to other sorts of scenarios out there. Like Aramco saying that they're worried about litigation. No, it's more like, why would people sue Aramco? Because once you get to look into their books, I bet you're going to find that this stuff is stinks to high heaven, that there's all sorts of closed, uh, you know, undisclosed third-party relationships and related transactions. There's bloated pay. There are the royal princes who've got no-show jobs, and they're on the payroll and all of this. Like Saudi, Arabia, Saudi Aramco as an organization, I strongly suspect it stinks, and it is just this – besotten thing that exists to take money out of oil out of the ground 
give it to the West. We give them money and they distribute it to who knows who for who knows what reason at who knows what rate. Well, once that all comes out on the New York market, we do all know. And that's why Saudi Aramco does not want to do this. Um, I do not think the United States should apologize for having a responsible corporate governance system out there that actually lets shareholders who own the company uh, have some sort of property rights to be able to insist that what they are investing in serves some greater purpose for them and not them serving the royal princes who I'm sure don't deserve anywhere near the amount of money they're getting in some cases. The other thing that uh, this article made me question, which Kevin did not bring up, is um, I guess the ease, maybe that's not even the right word, but how much easier it is to go to a private equity market for cash rather than an IPO. My recollection is that to properly prepare and execute an IPO, I think it's an 18 to 24-month process. And if you go to private equity, even if you have to do a number of roadshows, um, once a decision is made, uh, it is executed upon um, so Pretty that much. it can be much quicker. And that doesn't seem to be getting very much play, just the uh, the ease or efficiency of the access to that capital from the private equity market. I think that's very fair. And, you know, so it would raise the question that I'm sure Jeb Henserling and some of his other uh, henchmen and minions would probably say is, well, shouldn't we ameliorate that IPO process? doesn't have to be that painful. That's where I'll say, yes, we can. And some legislation that they are putting forward is reasonable and I think could be allowed. You know, For example, um, under one proposal Hensuling is considering um, that he supports, the ability to go and approach potential investors who are qualified institutional and buyers, you know, that would be expanded for companies. Well, if they're qualified institutional buyers, I'm okay with that. Um, the privileges that well-known seasoned issuers, basically large companies that have done this before, the privileges and exemptions they get from communicating with uh, would-be investors, that they can do this much more often because they're good at it and you can trust them. Could you expand some of that to uh, some non-Wixie issuers? Yeah, I, I, that's worth considering, too. Where I think that uh, there's some real concern, or there should be concern from compliance and governance officers, is that the way to simplify not just the IPO, but being public afterwards, which is different, and it's an important distinction to remember, we're going to get rid of the investor protections and the corporate governance regulations so that if you're a shareholder, you're really kind of at the mercy of the company that we're just going to do what we do. And if you don't like it, you know, don't buy the stock. And, you know, if you do buy the stock and you get caught flat footed, that's the buyer beware. That's your problem, not mine. Um, it would be a whole lot of stuff similar to what we saw in the dot-com boom. And for those of you who are old enough to remember it, and I was a tech reporter back then, I remember it. Um, so many companies with no real business plan, loosey-goosey investor communications and prospectuses that are promising the sky and cool launch parties, no product, no path to revenue, no earnings, no good corporate accounting, no good oversight. And then suddenly we were all shocked in 2001 when these companies all went away. And that sort of behavior is what brought us Sox and Dodd-Frank. Um, I don't see how returning to that environment is very helpful. And certainly it might feel good for a while, but so does shooting heroin. Eventually you crash. So did that market. This is not a good path for us to be considering. 
Well, in speaking to that point, uh, Coffee, I think, uh, was quoted as saying, under-regulation can be as serious a problem as over-regulation. That really leads into what I wanted to conclude our discussion with, Matt, which is that Coffee pointed out that none of these proposed bills had been vetted uh, really at all by the SEC or other concerned constituencies, and they all would be major retreats in corporate governance. And he concluded by saying there's no crisis demanding deregulation. Uh, so no. are they completely cutting out the SEC from having any um, impact or input into this process? I think that um, they are probably in a rush to try and get this done. It is worth noting the political dimension here that Jeb Henserling is retiring at the end of this year. It is entirely possible that the Republicans will not be in control of the House next year. And if they aren't, all of this talk here, this goes away. Uh, There is no circumstance where all of these anti-compliance, anti-governance measures are going to go very far under a Democratic House. Um, Secondly, I think what's interesting and what really stuck out with me was one particular bill that uh, the Financial Services Committee endorsed that for small companies, they would be exempt from filing their financial statements in XBRL. Now, Tom, you and I have talked about that before. That is the data language that lets computer programs read financial data so you can find it and display it easier. So all of the reading through for the 10K or the 10Q to find out who has product liability issues or something like that, you know, you can zip away with all of that. You can just type it in. You can find it in a moment. And no more reading through the 10Ks and 10Qs to dig out the details. They're all tagged and visible. Well, so a lot of smaller companies say that uh, people don't use XBRL. That is not true. A lot of the investor community uses XBRL. But the language specifically called for a cost-benefit analysis of XBRL to the company, not to the investors, not to the regulators, not to anybody else. It doesn't matter that this makes it much easier for investors to make informed apples-to-apples decisions and investment comparisons. It doesn't matter that our benefit is great while the burden for the companies might be something, and it isn't that much, and it is getting smaller because the technology keeps improving, and the SEC is on this. All of those kind of realities go out the window with these knee-jerk ideas that it's a regulation, it must be bad. Let's say it's a cost-benefit analysis to the company, and so therefore we can kill it. Well, there are more players in the capital markets than the issuers, and that is a fact that you don't really see reflected in a lot of what the House Republicans want to do. The SEC probably is going to be more accommodating to issuers anyways. Let's not kid ourselves. But it can do this in a more intelligent, nuanced fashion that at least gives other parties in the capital markets some voice. And that's not at all what's happening here with um, the House Republicans. So, you know, there is a ball in motion. People should compliance officers should keep their eye on it. I don't know how far it will go, but fundamentally, the, a lot of what these arguments are, just like they don't hold up. They are not based in facts and reality. Well, that seems like a good point to end on, Matt. I think this is a story that we're going to continue to follow, and uh, hopefully we'll have uh, <clears throat> some other blog posts to, uh, to th- talk about going forward. So thanks again. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance into the Weeds. 
If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about the only podcast which takes a deep dive, literally going into the weeds for a compliance or compliance-related topic each week. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I hope you'll join us again next week where we take another deep dive into the compliance weeds to explore a topic. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.